I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Meltdown, Three Mile Island. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare, a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today. Middletown, Pennsylvania is on edge tonight. Highways are backed up and telephones are jammed. Today, we're talking to director Keith Davidson. In 1979, crews at the Three Mile Island nuclear plant in Pennsylvania were stunned when a series of malfunctions led to a partial core meltdown. Though plant operators said the situation was under control and no radiation had leaked, government officials questioned their honesty and debated whether a wide-scale evacuation was necessary. Even after the largest nuclear accident on American soil had been contained, undetected dangers to the nation remained. Meltdown is a gripping four-part documentary series that tells the story of ordinary people having the courage to do extraordinary things, including a whistleblower who risked everything to prevent a second, even more catastrophic disaster. Little did we know. There was another scenario awaiting us that was potentially much more dangerous than the accident. Keith Davidson, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks for having me. So this is a story that's more than 40 years old. What made you want to revisit Three Mile Island? Um, You know, it is a story that's over 40 years old, but I was pretty surprised to... Uh, sort of find out just how few people really knew about this story, uh, I guess, because it's 40 years old uh, and looked at this as uh, sort of a way to sort of revisit the story, reach a, an audience, a younger audience that may never have heard of Three Mile Island. But even for those that did know about what happened there, I don't think many people really knew the full story of what really happened there. So You know, I tend to sort of start from a point in my process of of sort of investigating uh, elements of a story that may not have been covered before, in addition to identifying, you know, uh, an essential character that could be core in sort of telling the story from a new perspective in in a different way. So the four episodes of your series, I think they could be split into two acts, basically. So let's start with the first act and the setting. Uh, Bring us back to the 70s. Can you talk about some of the pressures to normalize nuclear power generation in the United States? Well, at that time, I mean, nuclear energy was really looked at as really a a savior for um, sort of power situation that the country was was dealing with. And sometimes you have to look back uh, in order to look ahead. So there was this promise that these uh, nuclear plants would be, they were you know, considered the promise of tomorrow, the future, the future of energy, and uh, very much considered a, a clean energy as well, sort of certainly compared to coal and gas and, and, and the, the sort of the dirty sort of fuels. So, you know, so, so basically when the, when the Three Mile Island ha- accident happened, 
the, the thinking was that this was a very safe technology, but then they realized that actually things can go wrong. And then if they go wrong, they could go wrong in a pretty massive way. So can you talk about the pop culture of the time? Because sure. there was this movie, The China Syndrome, which you mentioned in the documentary. How did that set the stage for how the public perceived a real life nuclear accident? Well, I mean, it's about as uncanny as as, as it gets, right? I mean, The China Syndrome came out, I think, 12 days or so before the accident happened. Hmm. And there's a line in the China syndrome talking about a plant melting down in Pennsylvania that could, you know, uh, re, uh, wreak havoc. And all of a sudden, 12 days later, after this movie came out, um, there was an accident. So, I mean, the thing about the China syndrome is that it was just, it was so well researched at the time. It was based on facts and it was based on things that could go wrong. Um, and, and, and what went wrong in the China syndrome is, is very close to what, what happened at, at Three Mile Island. So mm-hmm. the China syndrome as a movie got a lot of things right. But, but what the China syndrome also did was brought some awareness to what could go wrong if a plant melts down. So it did really add to the tremendous fear that was happening, particularly in Pennsylvania on the ground there, but also in the U.S. and probably worldwide, because this they now had a point of reference with this movie where it was, you know, potential and end of days type catastrophe. So it certainly right. didn't help with um, people sort of having a level headed sort of cool sort of approach to to this accident. It, magnif- it, it magnified the fear on the ground. And, and throughout the country. So bring us back to 4 a.m. on March 18th, 1979. What were the first signs of trouble at Three Mile Island? Well, in, in talking with uh, you know, various engineers and, and, and people that, that were working there, there was a, there was a, there was a coolant sort of failure. And um, you know, there was a loud sound also that happened. It took them a while to sort of figure out what was truly going on and it, it, it's fairly complicated, but there were, there were, you know, a couple of sort of, sort of big missteps on the sort of user side operator error. I mean, luckily what, what we come to find out that, you know, what they, they, they finally got hold of the problem and figured out the problem like a couple of hours into this thing. But at that point it was already too late. There was already, you know, radiation leaking, but they actually solved the issue just at the right time. And ultimately what's revealed much, much later in the, in the project that, that if they would not have solved this issue, that within 30 minutes, they would have had a China syndrome type meltdown. Well, we hear that Lieutenant Governor Scranton says he was in the middle of his own press conference when he realized MedEd had been holding back critical information. I was really angry because I had gotten myself up there essentially avowed that what Metropolitan Edison said was correct. Where are the personnel who are charged with the responsibility of monitoring the atmosphere? They are standing by in our office. Did they have any reason before this to think the company hadn't been forthcoming? No, I mean, it's, I mean, quite frankly, they felt like they didn't feel like this was really going to be a big problem. Um, there is a great moment when, when you look at that archival footage when... Uh, one of the company representatives, a guy named Bill Dornsife, steps up and in the middle of it, he's like, 
Well, actually, no, there is a problem. Um, we detected radioactive iodine outside of the plant, and you see the looks on Scranton's face, and you see the, the, the look of his press secretary, Critchlow, and it's just, you know, just like, oh, my God, like, what's, what is going on? You know, they were in the middle of this and just trying to figure it out in real time. Um, and, you know, ultimately, they, I think, you know, they, they did they did the best they could. You know, it's uh, no one would have thought that this was possible. So one of the things that really interests me about your documentary and again, something that I had never thought about before watching it were the PR calculations here, because it wasn't just profit. Um, one thing we hear over and over and over again, and we hear about it even with Met Ed, was that this motivation uh, was about kind of saving the nuclear power industry, like the faith in the nuclear power industry, that calculation that being truthful about this incident could somehow ruin uh, Americans' faith in the industry. And I was wondering, like, so was the calculation that if this became a full-scale meltdown, then it wouldn't have mattered if they had been candid, you know, because, um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it just seems like the, the idea of having that conversation in a room and making that calculation, it's, it's kind of nuts when you think about it, right? Well, look, I mean, the, the entire industry was on the hook with what was happening here. The last thing anyone wanted was... Um, a full-scale meltdown, it, it, was, it would have been the, the death knell to the industry. And it, and it basically was. You know, you speak with someone like Rick Parks, who even through corporate intimidation and, and him having to become a whistleblower and go public, you know, he's still fiercely pro-nuclear pro and, and believes that that technology in conjunction with green technology is the only way to go. And a lot of people really feel that. Um, but he also believes that you have to have you have to have better oversight into the, the companies that are incentivized to get things done done quicker. And it just continued, you know, into just the cleanup phase as well. Once you once they started getting into the cleanup phase, there was this sort of idea that you just have to solve this problem quickly. That it was that in a, in, a, in a nutshell that could have caused a much bigger accident than what happened with Three Mile Island that Rick Parks and, and his colleagues uh, like Larry King ultimately prevented uh, by going public with the intro. Well, everyone was running away from Unit 2. One man volunteered to go in. That's Ed Hauser. It was hours that I was in the shower trying to get rid of the contamination and uh, didn't work very well. I was still contaminated when I came home. I wouldn't touch my kids. Can you talk about why he volunteered to go in? Do you think he was on a suicide mission of sorts? No, I, I don't think anyone was on a suicide mis mission. Uh, um, I mean, look, there's no question that he was a he was a brave man in doing what he did. I don't I don't believe in talking with him that he thought that he would he would die from 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 going in there. He went in with all the safety precautions. Um, did everything the right way, um, although actually not exactly the right way because his his suit wasn't properly taped, and that's actually what got him a nice dose of radiation. That uh, you know, while it didn't kill him, I think he's lived with it all these years. You know, as to wondering like, am I going to get cancer from this? You know, very. I mean, the, the people that work in these places, you know, you see you see the bravery, like like someone like Ed Hauser. It's like you turn around and run or you go and you try to 
try to solve the problem. And for him, it was like, I could, I could help figure this out. He did what he did. Um, and luckily for him, the exposure that he received didn't, didn't result at least up until now into, into, uh, you know, a death sentence. I want to talk a little bit about the craft of this film because you did bring in actors, obviously, to recreate the action in the control room. Um, but you obviously were talking to a lot of engineers who were there at the time of the accident. And I'm wondering, to what extent did you make sure that like the control panels, the alarm lights uh, were accurate for the period of time at, at Three Mile Island? Well, let me let me start by saying that, our, you know, we ultimately wound up building a 40 foot by 40 foot nuclear control room set. Uh, wow. You know, period, 1979. Uh, it, w- it wasn't our intent initially to do that. Initially, our plan was to film across the street from Three Mile Island that had a simulator, uh, which is basically a button for button replica um, with working lights of, 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 of the control room. Um, but what derailed us was uh, COVID. So we started this mm. during COVID and we just could not get access. Um, and then that prevented us from getting access at any other facilities. So we were then left with the pretty sort of daunting task of having to like reconstruct as best as we could this control room. We started talking about how the, how the heck are we going to build a control room on such a limited budget? First off, we live in Los Angeles. If, if anything could happen, it could happen here. But he wound up finding a couple of different prop houses and places in, in L.A., where a lot of the machinery, you know, works. There were these like big panels with working lights that were period. And, you know, it was a pretty monumental task. And then because so many of those lights were working lights, it really just added to the authentic, you know, being as authentic as possible. But even with that, there were certain gauges and dials and lights that we needed to know exactly, you know, where those gauges were, what do they mean, what was the sequencing of lights? What did it sound like in this control room? So we started to talk with um, people that have worked in these rooms and, and we had consultants. And I have to say, I mean, I've never had such an extensive, extensively detailed document such as the ones that we were giving our art department um, and everyone just, you know, references for, you know, every button and knob and what they do and what's the sequencing I mean, it was probably a hundred pages worth of worth of material, so it was pretty monumental. But at the end of the day, I was quite I was quite pleased with not only how it looked, but but the idea of being able to fully control how we're shooting this by constructing walls that are that are movable. Um, we had a tremendous amount of flexibility and being really cinematic in how we how we shot it. Now, there seems to be a ton of archival news footage, not just around the days of the accident, but for years afterwards. Now, as a documentarian, um, was there too much <laughs> or not? Or is there never enough? No, no, there's there's never enough. We were we were still <laughs> I mean, we we really struggled with finding footage from day one, you know, because it really wasn't until the second day that the media really started to come in day one when the accident happened, no one. No one thought it was a big deal. It's just, you know, even even when a general emergency was called, there was no press there. 
the idea was that, hey, this is no no biggie. It's all going to be fine. Nothing to worry about. So that actually led, quite frankly, to why um, our episode one has a good amount of recreation type, you know, cinematography in it is because there was very little archival. But then as each day progressed, that sort of five day period when when this was really going down um, over that first first two episode arc that we cover that that there's there's much more archival to to work with so you know we really struggled with that day one material and there's you know you could see it in just how much we shot to sort of recreate the drama and and have this effective sort of ticking time clock you know thriller approach to to what was going on so there's ne- never enough archival footage and no matter what project you're working on is 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 is, is the answer so that moves us to the second act of your story. Now, the public knew a cleanup was necessary. They had to deal with the radiation, but the possibility of another accident, a larger accident, wasn't something that was out there. And in the first two episodes, one of the people that we heard from was the operator, Rick Parks. It's not until episode three that we learn how important he is to this story. Can you describe his personality? Sure. Well, look, I mean, it was Rick Parks was the reason why I wanted to do this project. Well, in the process, they put duct tape over it. Now, duct tape is good for a lot of things. You can ask any redneck. They can do anything with duct tape and bailing wire. But you can't stop radioactivity with it. I don't, I don't know if I would have taken on the project if it was just a, a, a retelling of what happened at Three Mile Island. I didn't know that there was a whole second chapter to this story nor does most people. I think for, I think for those that watch episodes three and four, and I, and I encourage everyone to do so, that's the, that's the chapter in history that people just don't know about. I was just immediately, like within like two minutes, I was like, there's no ch- chance of me not doing this. I mean, he was just such a uh, interesting person. He called himself, he said, he said it just sort of off the cuff to me at one point. And I had recognized that he, 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 he said, he's, he's like, I'm probably the, the smartest redneck you'll ever meet. Hmm. And he was, you know, he's right in the fact that he's probably the smartest person I've ever, I've ever met. I mean, the, the guy is just a wealth of knowledge and, you know, he's got this sort of like very likable, charming, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of a, you know, country bumpkin type sort of thing that he kind of plays a little bit, I think, Yep. you know, but I found him to just be, to be just so open and honest and and funny. um, But at the same time, just absolutely fearless and just like, like an amazing soul. Um, So I found him to just to be a very relatable protagonist for, for an audience to, to really follow. And I think on top of all that, based on what he had to personally go through and bringing the story to the public, you would think that he would, you know, take a very anti sort of nuclear approach to things now. And it's the, it's, it's the polar opposite. I mean, that the, the possibility of an accident with that he saw as being really, really grave. So he becomes a whistleblower and he describes his life really coming apart after becoming a whistleblower. Um, what was your perception of how much danger 
he was really in there. I mean, you you draw comparisons to the Silkwood case, which I, you know, in the film, people draw comparisons to the Silkwood case, which I find really interesting. Was Rick, uh, was his story potentially comparable to hers? You know, it's it's hard to know. It's like, because you just don't know what was really going on sort of behind the scenes. Um, no hint. I mean, the Silkwood case was, was pretty extreme. I mean, that was, you know, everyone believes that there was corporate involvement in that. With Rick... There was definitely a threat. And I think because Rick was working with uh, the Government Accountability Project, um, who represents whistleblowers, they full well knew what um, people were capable of in in this industry. So the threat was very much there. He felt that there was a threat to his family. I think for him, though, it it was less about the threat to his family, because ultimately he, he wound up getting his family, you know, in a safe place. It was, it was less about the, the physical threat to him that drove him. It was more just about knowing that this actual threat of what could happen in the plant, you know, could potentially kill, you know, a substantial amount of people. So it was that, you know, element of needing to help to his part and protect the, the people and all the people that he loved and all the, you know, and just part of his nature that that was his driving force, you know, mm. less so about his own sort of personal, personal safety. Um, and look, mm. and I think, and, and I was also just so interested with him just as a, as a person too, as a character that can't take it lightly with the fact that, you know, he loved the industry that he worked in, you know, he's a fierce believer in that technology. And he had to go against the very industry that he was very much a part of. And he was very conflicted about it. So someone with a very different perception of that situation was Lake Barrett from the NRC. Mm -hmm. Um, He described the many issues around the cleanup as a soap opera and seemed to me to be pretty dismissive still of the public's concerns. Did that surprise you, given everything that we know today? Well, I mean, it's it surprised me that Lake Barrett even did the interview with us. Yeah, um, that's what really surprised me because, uh, I mean, he he really was the uh, perfect sort of antagonist, uh, certainly to Rick's stories. Can you find some isolated person who will tell you a story that's probably not scientifically legitimate? Sure. You can. You can probably find them and you can make a wonderful show that scares people and maybe you'll get good ratings. But it's garbage. He, he, he just struck me as being fairly unsympathetic to what people were going through there. You know, he, he looked at so many of uh, people's fears and concerns as just being overly dramatic. You know, we keep there's, you know, in that last two episodes, we actually you see him say it several times. You know, he, he actually refers to Joyce and Paula, the, the, our, our activist characters, as, as, you know, feeling sorry for them because they're just stressing themselves out sort of too much. So, you know, it's hard to know whether it's where he's he's coming from with this or, is he, you know, sort of towing the sort of corporate corporate line and and this this really was not a problem and no one got hurt. So stop worrying about it. And there's no proof that there was that this caused cancer. So you're just stressing yourselves out. I mean, it was, um, for me, a pretty shocking thing to experience. But at the same time, as a filmmaker, you're looking at this like, Oh my God, just keep talking. Mm. Um, 
you know, the, the more the conversation went on and the more he realized how much we knew about things, the, uh, the more interesting the interview, the interview got. What I was not expecting from your documentary was such an emotional scene, that reunion between Rick and Nicole Remsberg, who was his girlfriend's daughter, who he hadn't seen in 40 years or so. How did that come about? Well, I mean, look, Nicole was was one of the characters that uh, we decided to to focus on. And, and one of the big reasons was it was a twofold reason with her is that she was, you know, she looked directly across the street. She wound up ultimately getting uh, cancer that nearly killed her. But she also was the daughter of, you know, her his her mom had was in a serious relationship with Rick Parks. And this was during the time period where Rick Parks decided to go public and there were threats against his family. And he believed that there were, they, they could potentially do something worse than, than, than what they they've done at the time, which was break into his apartment and steal documents. Um, what was uh, interesting for me and what's really just not explored in, in situations like this is just the personal collateral damage that something like this could do to, to a family. So, you know, they had not seen each other in, in, in so many years and, you know, their, the relationship with, you know, fell apart largely because Rick felt that there was a threat. Uh, Nicole's mom really thought there was a threat and she needed to, they needed to distance themselves from each other and just, you know, it just, they never came back uh, together on it. and she couldn't accept that Rick Parks was going to go public. So I think that led to just you know, them splitting apart and, and they, they were not in really communication for, for many, many years. And it wasn't until like the making of this film and Nicole became a character in this that Rick started to talk about really wanting to see Nicole again. And he knew that we were going to go back to Middletown and do some filming with him they were both very like excited to see one another. Um, but it was literally the first time they'd seen each other since, since he left. And if your mom and I could have figured out a way that I could have walked out of that mess without me going public, I would have done it. But there was no way that I could come up with. Think I'm a fool? <sighs> I think you're my hero. I think you're brave. You were very special to me. You know, it's a powerful scene. I I really just kind of hung back with the cameras, didn't say anything, and and just let it play out. You just see, like, these two people that just had such love for each other that could have had a real long great relationship to get together that just never came to be due to those circumstances. So it is, it is a strong moment in the film. And, you know, I get choked up every time I see it because it's just so honest and genuine and, and raw, basically, you know, it brought, it brought Rick and Nicole together, right. At the same time, Rick couldn't be more happy, couldn't be happier about the result of this because he feels like, you know, his story has finally been told and it, and, it, and it's going to have an impact. And Larry King, who's, you know, still a minor character in regards to screen time, 
also was a very brave whistleblower that, you know, risked his career to come forward. And, and they finally feel like they, what they did has some real meaning and purpose in regards to like an understanding of what they had to go through. So this doesn't happen again. And yet Rick still believes in nuclear energy, which is so interesting, if it has regulation, if profit isn't in the middle of it. And I can't help but think, you know, there are places in the world where it has been running safely for decades and decades and decades, and they haven't had a three-mile island. So perhaps he's not naive in that belief, no, right? I, I, no, it's definitely not naive at all. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a viable technology, but it's mm-hmm. a very... It's a very risky technology if it's not if it's not handled properly. If it's handled properly, you know it's it's quite viable. You know, I mean, you, you, but you look at you look at if things go bad with it, things go very bad. I mean, you look at what happened in Fukushima, right? It's like, all right, so tsunami basically took it out. Um, you know, you look at what happened in Chernobyl. And even what what the the, the 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 near disaster we almost had with Chernobyl with the Ukraine war when that was taken over, I mean, it was terrifying because that could have gone so badly. You know, you look at those types of disasters and catastrophes, and you look at the the corporate sort of profit in there, and you have to sort of assess, well, well, is it worth it? And and we're not here. Uh, as filmmakers to even give up our personal point of view on it, because it is, it is a very complicated thing. And, and, and it's, it's, we're not going to easily get ourselves out of this energy crisis um, quickly without having, you know, many forms of, of power to, to rely on. So I think it was important. It was important to have characters in this that, you know, really add to this sort of debate that's going on right now as to like, how do we solve this issue? It's like, is it worth, is it worth the risk to have nuclear power plants? A lot of people believe it is because it is, you know, much greener technology than most. So that's why it was also like the why now, like why tell the story now? It's like, well, this is why now, because we're still dealing with this all these years later since the Three Mile Island accident. Well, it's a fascinating story. You did a beautiful job putting it together, and I learned a lot. Keith Davidson, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Meltdown Three Mile Island. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Keith Davidson. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you get your audio. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 